on this episode of Skeptico, a show about the left-right divide, and a show about UFOs, and a show about why people believe weird things, and a show about my epiphany when I realized that all this truth-seeking stuff that I'm so concerned with ultimately has a lot to do with values and beliefs. And for me, if I'm going to strip all the way back to values and belief, I got to go to that fire-walking self-development giant, Tony Robbins. Here's a clip. If I said to you, which would you rather have? Success, adventure, outrageousness, love, comfort, or feelings of security, which would you pick? Some people say, well, gosh, it's clear to me. I want to absolutely have success. That's what life is about. Other people go, well, success is nice, but, you know, you can succeed and not be adventurous. I want to be an adventurer. Other people go, no, hey, I want to be outrageous. If you're outrageous, you're going to have fun. You're going to play. You're going to have a great time in life. Other people go, well, that's all nice, but what I want is love. I mean, you can have all those other things, but if you don't feel love, you don't have anything. Other people say, no, 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 man. I mean, you can be loved, but still not feel comfortable. Who wants to be loved and be in pain all the time? All of us in life have learned to take different words that we call emotions and to give them levels of importance. Now, you might be wondering what that has to do with part two of my interview with Jimmy Fallon Gong, who you heard from a couple episodes back. And as I promised, this episode is a little more skeptical, back and forth, paradigm collide kind of stuff. Here's a clip where Jimmy and I are talking about how his radical left, tinfoil left, I should say, a term that he coined that is really, I think, fantastic about conspiratorially woke people who happen to be on the left. Here we are hashing out the issue of class. Because if you look at people who are traditionally on the right, they go, oh, you're interfering with my liberty. Well, if you look at people on the left, They're saying the same thing. You know, you are somehow inhibiting the liberty of disadvantaged groups in a a very real way. When I hear you talk about class, I'm just, I'm just like thrown back. I'm like, what the heck does he even mean by class? My identification in terms of class is my grandfather who came over from Greece when he's 14 years old with a $5 bill sewn into his jacket. That's all he had. I'm wealthy now, but that's just two generations. Isn't the dimension that we're really talking about class mobility? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's sort of like this idea that, I mean, not everyone can be like a business owner. Not everyone can be the boss. Like not everyone can move up. And so what, what, what do you mean? You by take that? something you take, well, like you take something like labor unions, like we were talking about and they, Basically, we're trying to, yeah, get a, as large a group of people as possible to have a good standard of living. And then you said that that way they could move up. But like the way I see it is like unions wanted everyone who worked to be comfortable and to receive a fair slice of the pie because they are those are the people actually working, not the shareholders, not the most of the bosses. Right. No, so like, no, what? that's not right. 
I mean, the whole principle of the United States and what it's built on and what really drives it is meritocracy, is that people who well, deserve that's it. Never, that's never actually been true, though. Exactly. So, but yeah. that, is the, that is the goal. It's about the best moving forward. It's meritocracy. It's what your show, your show will succeed or fail based on how good it is. No one needs to force people to listen to program to chill. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I would probably just emphasize in terms of the left-right thing, like, yes, liberty is a huge focus, but liberty for who? Like, what rights do, if someone's free to make a million dollars, but they literally can't, what, what does that matter if they're starving? So as you might remember from last time, Jimmy has a terrific podcast called Program to Chill. And the last time he was on, we talked about the stuff that he really does so well, these kind of deep dives into history and his unique ability to synthesize these little known facts into some pretty remarkable stories. So when we got into all this other stuff during that interview, I felt like I needed to break it into a second part. And what I really want to pull out because it was, as I mentioned, somewhat of an epiphany for me, this why people believe weird things, which of course is you know, dependent on who the person is who says the other person's beliefs are weird. But again, the epiphany for me was how maybe this is connected to values in a way that I hadn't fully considered. I mean, fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with saying that security is your number one value. Just like there's nothing wrong with saying that success, however you define success, is your number one value. And I guess this is obvious stuff, but I know I've spun around on it for years and years without ever fully realizing that those values have a direct through line back to what we think is true. And that applies to things like left-right politics, as well as it does to a disbelief in left-right politics like I have. And it even factors into all the extended consciousness kind of stuff that we talk about on Skeptico. Here's the one from this interview that really sent me on tilt. And that is the topic of UFOs. This is regarding UFOs. You said, just apply Occam's razor. I don't understand why we'd ever think there could be something to UFOs when the overwhelming number of sightings occur in Commonwealth countries around Air Force braces where Air Force officers trained in psychological operations specifically try to mislead people about what's going on. And I'm like, that just doesn't connect with any of the reality of UFOs, which have been studied by a bunch of really, really smart people like i'm not denying that you know things appear in the sky that we can't explain i just think that perhaps the <laughs> more strict logical explanation would be this specific several bureaucracies <laughs> these intelligence agencies like the air force intelligence that are specifically trying to keep people from knowing their military secrets and i think at different points the ufo thing has been for different purposes like there's no continuity with like the quote-unquote aliens which is sort of separate from seeing things in the sky right actually that's not right it doesn't conform to the best data we have and 
I'm going to present a little bit of that data right here because we really didn't have a chance to do it on the show. And I was somewhat stunned by the whole thing anyway. So let's dive into it. First, it's always a good idea when you're trying to wrestle something to the ground that is shrouded in parapolitical conspiratorial stuff like the UFO thing certainly is, is to go cross culture, cross time. Now, we did that on Skeptico a long time ago when I interviewed Dr. Artie Sixkiller-Clark, an anthropologist from Montana State University. Here's a clip from that interview. When I first came to Montana State University, I was the director of the Center for Bilingual Multicultural Education. And I had gone out to one of the reservations in Montana, and the person who helped me out on site invited me out to dinner. And after dinner, he said to me, he said, uh, um, do you have some time? I want to show you something. And I said, sure. And he took me up in the mountains above his village, and he parked his car, and he reached over, and he got a pair of binoculars, and he said to me, come. If we're, if we're lucky, they'll come. And I said, who will come? And he said, well, the ancestors. And so we sat on this boulder, and we watched the night sky, and he told me stories about things that had happened to him in his life of his interaction with star people. Well, I had heard these stories when I was a little girl um, as well. And so when I when I left the reservation that night, all the way back to the university I was thinking about, I've heard these stories. He's heard these stories. How many other Native people have stories to tell? So if you listen to the interview, and more importantly, if you read her books, you'll find that thousands and thousands of Native people had stories to tell about the star people. Lower 48, Alaska, Hawaii, Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras, stories passed down through generations, as well as modern contemporary stories of sightings and of contact. So cross-culture, cross-time, the UFO ET thing holds up really well. Now, the second way to tackle something like this is to look for the best evidence, the repeatable evidence, the most reliable evidence that cuts through all the clutter. And not to digress, but I think there's kind of a parallel here with the near-death experience stuff. I mean, if you want to know about that stuff, go to the studies done in hospitals in the cardiac arrest ward where they interview the people right there after they've had a near-death experience. Reliable, repeatable accounts by people we trust. What's the peril with UFOs? For me, it's the UFOs and nukes thing. And the guy who's done more work on this than anybody else, like 30 years, hundreds and hundreds of interviews with very highly trusted people. Of course, I'm talking about the work of Robert Hastings, who I recently had an email interview with. But rather than include some of the very brief snippets that we had there, I want to play for you a clip from his appearance on CNN several years back. CNN's American Morning. What's your theory behind what's going on here with these sightings? Documents released via the Freedom of Information Act confirm that these types of incidents have occurred going back to 1948. Uh, the documents describe saucer-shaped objects uh, whose capabilities are vastly beyond anything that we have, the Russians have. I think the logical explanation is we're dealing with visitors from somewhere else. Regardless, there are a number of cases now. I've interviewed over 120 former or retired Air Force personnel who've talked about UFO incursions at missile sites, at nuclear weapons storage areas. The incident at Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana in 1967 did involve 
uh, the appearance of a saucer-shaped object above a nu nuclear missile launch site. Seconds later, all ten of these missiles controlled by this site malfunction. And uh, the two officers involved, including former Captain Bob Salas, who was at the press conference on Monday, by the way, uh, testified that he was sworn to secrecy uh, and told never to discuss this. He kept his silence until 1996. All the gentlemen who appeared with me at the press club uh, believe that the American people have a right to know the facts. But they didn't necessarily believe that theory about why those 10 nuclear sites were deactivated. Why do you believe... Why do you believe so strongly that that was truly happening and that it was the result of, of UFOs as opposed to, let's just say, a malfunction or a military exercise? Well, what you've just said is not entirely correct. They all agree that there was no technical explanation for what occurred. In fact, the engineering reports from Boeing Corporation stated just that. In fact, all seven of the persons who appeared with me believe that we are dealing with extraterrestrials. Some of them stated it explicitly at the press conference. What they do not necessarily agree with, uh, three, of the, three of the eight, uh, three of the seven agreed with me that these probably uh, represent, these actions represent a signal being sent. Uh, I'm of the opinion that whoever aboard these craft are telling us and the Russians, because these things have taken place in the former Soviet Union, that humans are playing with fire by possessing and threatening to use nuclear weapons. That is speculative on my part. I've always made that clear. But the persons who were at the sites, who witnessed the craft, uh, say that there is no, no technology on Earth that could account for what they witnessed. So the UFO ET thing should be clear. The evidence is very substantial. And those who can't accept it are revealing something about their values. Or maybe to be more exact, what it would feel like for them if they had to accept the data and face the paradigm shift that it brings. Now, of course, that's just one person's opinion, and my opinion is clearly biased by my values and my beliefs, but then that's the process we're all going through. And that's why I really appreciate Jimmy Fallon Gong for engaging in this dialogue in this way, and I hope the dialogue continues. Here's part two of my interview with Jimmy Fallon Gong. I, like you, prefer history that has a little bit of a age to it, a little bit of a crust to it, because it, it does settle down and it gives us some distance from it also emotionally. It's kind of hard to even mm -hmm. process that. At the same time, the problem with that is as it moves further and further into the sunset, it's more prone to being uh, rewritten and uh, mm -hmm. irrecoverably rewritten in a way that we can't get back to it. No one talks about 9-11 anymore. It's like it's gone. It's like no one talks about Building 7. What the heck happened with Building 7? But, you know, one of the points that, that I thought would be interesting to kind of talk about, and I don't even know that I might even divide this interview into two sections because or two mm -hmm. shows and i also you know kind of suggest we could even do a a, a swap cast because I, I do one-off interviews with people that i don't intend to do one-off interviews with but like the subliminal jihad guys they don't like me anymore because i said caleb you're you're a muslim how can you defend that i had opperman on Opp ed really big tent revival christianity right? This is not normal, Ed. No, that's not a normal, you know? So it's like, but I, I, I'm surprised when people are not able to 
kind of get over that. It just becomes a kind of barrier. Steven Snyder, recluse. I really like him. I respect him. He's been on the show a couple of times. I've been on his show once, but I can tell it's this kind of tinfoil left barrier that I just sometimes feel like I can't get past. So if we were going to divide this into two shows, I think the second show that I would start with is what's going on with the tinfoil left? I mean, what is th- what is that? You introduced me to the term. Who is it? What is it? And let's dissect that a little bit, because I think it's fascinating to me because I, I, it's not where I sit in terms of I'm not interested in left or right. I don't know who is interested in left or right. It all seems like such a farce at this point. But please start with tinfoil left, whether or not you identify with it and what it is. Yeah, no. And I will say as a disclaimer, like I think that I might have come up with the term. I'm sure someone has put those two words together before. And I found myself trying to figure out a easy term because on the part of Twitter that I'm frequently on, there was a, there still is a very large and prominent click called the dirtbag left, which, you know, incorporates it's several other major podcasts that, you know, I'm not really involved with, but essentially the tinfoil left is it's almost like a niche of a niche of a niche because the left in America itself is kind of a subculture, kind of a marginal one in some ways. And then on top of that, there's sort of like outside of most political parties and even outside of radical left political parties, which are already sort of in shambles in the U S there is a sliver of people who I guess you could say are enthusiasts of radical politics who are also enthusiasts of conspiracy theory and sort of blends the two. And I would consider myself sort of doing that. Uh, Also the subliminal jihad podcast. I I'm mind games is another, like I would be remiss. Like I don't, there's, there's probably a, a bunch I'm forgetting, but like, it's essentially a click of people who are going like hand in hand, like conspiracy theories, trying to meld it onto a leftist analysis that tries to be grounded in material reality, but not necessarily denying certain spiritual things happening as well. It's a very weird, almost anarchic space. And it's like truly not that large. So I'm not trying to make it sound more important than it is. But I think it is important. I can't believe you coined that phrase because I've run into it again and again, and it kind of catches me by surprise. I think he can throw Opperman in that category. Mm, yeah. I mean, he, he kind of outs himself as that. Stephen, you know, when I ask him those kind of Stephen Snyder recluse from the farm, I ask him that kind of stuff. And, you know, he says he's kind of more apolitical or kind of right down the middle, but I don't know. He seems kind of more left-leaning to me. In in a way, I guess where I'd start with the tinfoil left kind of thing is in what way do you process the reality of a left versus right? If we were to transition from the first interview we had into the second one, I guess I'd say, isn't that the lesson 
that we get from program to chill is this idea of left right just kind of crumbles it's just about power and and different people trying to power influence social engineering control how does that even matter from a left right perspective yeah i mean i do think that in some ways the framework can be unhelpful on a number of levels for sure but at the same time i don't think like i do think first and foremost that things are about power but it's like once you have power or like if you have power what do you do with it any policy you pick arguably goes in a left or right direction it's also just a framework of analysis too you know no, I don't know. I don't I don't get that. To just finish that thought, I just had an interview with a really excellent guy who's written a book. His name is Mark Gober, and he wrote a book, The End to Upside Down Liberty. And he wrote the follow-on to a book that he wrote on on consciousness, the kind of the skeptical things. Consciousness, science, extended consciousness, you know, what's going on, near-death experience, and all the rest of this. But I thought he did a great shift. He said, look, isn't the dimension that we want to look at this stuff, isn't it really about liberty? Because if you look at people who are traditionally on the right, they go, oh, you're interfering with my liberty. Well, if you look at people on the left, they're saying the same thing. You know, you are somehow inhibiting the liberty of, you know, disadvantaged groups. For in, a, in a very real way, you know, whether it's women or African-American, whatever group, you know, it's the same thing, liberty. I'd add another, you know, when, when I hear you talk about class, I'm just, I'm just like thrown back. I'm like, what the heck does he even mean by class? I think about myself, you know, what class am I in? My identification in terms of class is my grandfather who came over from Greece when he was 14 years old with a $5 bill sewn into his jacket. That's all he had. I, it, I'm, I'm wealthy now, but that's just two generations. I, I don't think of myself as that. So, it, and it's like, isn't the dimension that we're really talking about the way, what I think it is when I think of class, it's class mobility. Uh, so people on the right who are really who are identified on the right who have half a brain say, hey, it's about class mobility. It's about the ability of people to move up. And then there's elitists or some people call them oligarchs. And they definitely don't want that. They want to limit the mobility of the classes. Well, I think it's the same thing on the left. I mean, traditional leftish politics were like labor unions. Labor unions were really in their best sense about class mobility, about let's get you a living wage so that you can move up in the world. Not so that you can work forever at the Ford Motor Factory, but you know, eventually you'll get enough money and you can do whatever you want to do. Class mobility. So I don't understand the left or right. It seems like such an op. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's sort of like this idea that, I mean, not everyone can be like a business owner. Not everyone can be the boss. Like not everyone can move up. And so what, what, what do you mean? You by take that? something you take, well, like you take something like labor unions, like we were talking about, and they basically were trying to, yeah, get a, as large a group of people as possible to have a good standard of living. And then you said that that way they could move up. But like, 
the way I see it is like unions wanted everyone who worked to be comfortable and to receive a fair slice of the pie because they are those are the people actually working, not the shareholders, not the most of the bosses, right? No, so like, no, what? that's not that's not that's not right. I mean, the whole principle of the United States and what it's built on and what really drives it is meritocracy, is that people who well, deserve that's it. Never, that's never actually been true, though. Exactly. So, but yeah. that, is the, that is the goal. It's like, you know, the Constitution is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then we enslave all these people for 100 years. And then when they're, when they're not enslaved, they get a reprieve for about a year. And then, and then a bunch of people go in and just enslave them again in a different way. And the people in the North mm -hmm. say, ah, oh, to hell with it. We're enough. We've had enough of that slavery, mavery stuff, you know, let it go back. But still, if we don't have the ideal that we were shooting for, we wouldn't have a chance. I mean, we would just be mired in just this kind of, you know, it's like the quote, people shouldn't fear their government. Governments should fear their people. Well, that is what capitalism about is about. That's what democracy is about. But it's not about, you know, everyone just goes and punches their time card at Ford Motor Company and just takes your salary. It's about the best moving forward. It's meritocracy. It's what your show, your show will succeed or fail based on how good it is. No one needs to force people to listen to program to chill. Yeah, I mean, and I think that I would probably just emphasize in terms of the left right thing, like, yes, liberty is a huge focus, but liberty for who like what rights do if someone's free to make a million dollars but they literally can't what what does that matter if they're starving you know like so at the end of the day it's like are we trying to get everyone to have enough to eat or are we trying to make it so that there can be a few mine owners who are millionaires and everyone else is stuck in the coal mine you know, that's where labor unions come in. So that's going to be a difficult topic to kind of really parse out. We will we'll yeah. kind of switch off of that slightly. What else are you? No, no what else are you coming no from on that? Well, basically, I just a lot of the history that I'm excavating is basically from a perspective of like the left being sold out by different forces. And the, by the left, I often mean like labor unions, like popular democracy. Like there's a lot of stories of basically these bureaucracies, army, big business, intelligence agencies trying to steal the power away from popular democracy, parliament, Congress, you know, trying to undermine labor unions, <clears throat> different political parties. So I would just say it's not that I necessarily try to get hung up on left versus right, but I do think that there is that undermining of democracy that happens that is basically a constant through modern history okay so i'll tell you what let's shift the focus a little bit but in a way i think it's related and that is this kind of worldview collide kind of thing yeah. that i think is so fascinating because i think that's partly what's going on with the tinfoil left versus the tinfoil hat kind of truther community you know and the tinfoil left, which is, again, fantastic term for you to coin. I think it's, I think it's going to work. I think it's going to have tremendous legs because everyone knows immediately what you're talking about. But this has popped up 
several times and then i heard it from you as well and it's almost like a repeat of the quote it reminds me of the flat earth stuff that's like wait a minute that's just completely insane why are people regurgitating that over and over again mm -hmm. and the, the way you said it is this is regarding ufos you said just apply Occam's razor. I don't understand why we'd ever think there could be something to UFOs when the overwhelming number of sightings occur in Commonwealth countries around Air Force braces where Air Force officers trained in psychological operations specifically try to mislead people about what's going on. And I'm like, that just doesn't connect with any of the reality of UFOs, which have been studied by a bunch of really, really smart people do you want to speak to that for a second before i kind of yeah well i think that it's not too, like i'm not denying that you know things appear in the sky that we can't explain you know i just think that perhaps the <laughs> more strict logical explanation would be this specific several bureaucracies <laughs> these intelligence agencies like the air force intelligence that are specifically trying to keep people from knowing their military secrets. And I think at different points, the UFO thing has been for different purposes. Like early on in the Cold War, <clears throat> I think they were probably trying to flush out Soviet spies. I think at other points, it's performed some very interesting things in culture, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. I think that there were different iterations of it. And people have talked about how, you know, there were a lot of grays in this certain period there. Um, there was like a weird bubble of seeing Pleiadeans over in this period of time, you know, like the first UFOs were all talking about, oh, we shouldn't do atomic testing. And now they're talking about like, you know, they're doing probing. And so it's, just, there's no continuity with like the quote unquote aliens which is sort of separate from seeing things in the sky, right? Yeah, but what I read, the overwhelming number of sightings occur in Commonwealth countries around Air Force bases. I was really surprised to hear that because it just isn't, it isn't at all accurate. It doesn't conform to the real data in the same way that like, so you dig in, you do these fantastic in-depth looks at Nazi Germany. It'd be like somebody coming along and you talking to them about uh, Goring and Bormann and Hess, and they're like, who are who are those people? And you'd go like, wow, this guy doesn't really know anything other than Adolf Hitler. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to say, when you say that, do you know do you know who Terry Lovelace is? Do you know who Travis Walton is? Do you know who Betty and Barney Hill are? Do you know who Chris Bledsoe is? Okay, I mean, yeah, but the the Hills were almost transparently abducted by like intelligence. No. Like, not at all. Have you, have you listened to interviews with Betty and Barney Hill's relatives? The, number one, there's a history of abduction in that family. Betty Hill, I forget her maiden name, her mother says that she had contact. And so it, it's the same story you hear over and over again. But even if you go, like the most reliable way you'd want to look at this is cross-culture, cross-time, right? So have you ever heard of Artie Six Killer Clark? Probably no. not. Uh, uh, Montana State University, uh, Native American person, not that that matters, except that she 
by virtue of that, was able to gain access to a bunch of Native American communities that other people maybe couldn't. So she goes in and she goes, so tell me. And they all just tell her up and down, you know, the star people and the craft and the UFOs. And she talks to very old people. She talks to younger people. She talks about stories that have been passed around. And it's unbelievable. She publishes this book. You've never heard of it because it doesn't fit into that paradigm. Then she goes and she writes another book. She goes down to Central America. She goes to South America. It's like when you say the vast majority of these cases are in Commonwealth, overwhelming, you say overwhelming number of sightings occur in Commonwealth countries. That's just completely not true. Go to the, go to YouTube, like the Mexico sightings all over Mexico, Brazil, all over Brazil, all over the world, but across cultures, across time, these things have been reported. Yeah, so the, but there are U.S. military bases in all of those countries. I, I just can't. I mean, to me, that it's, sounds there's not so. A yeah, but there's not a consistent number of UFO sightings. It certainly spikes after the invention of airplanes. Is, would you agree with that? It spikes after the invention of uh, phones too, with uh, with cameras on them. So I, I just think it's you're to me you're you're doing the exact opposite of what you do on on applying it to the the history like of Germany like to me the pullout point from the part we talked about in part one is that we now have to understand the formation of the Nazi party differently because of its connection to intelligence and intelligence organizations and we shouldn't fall for the kind of standard lone nut assassin oh my gosh you know well to me it's the same thing here it's like the the real stories we have all directly contradict what you're saying do you know who paul benowitz is yes okay so paul benowitz so what do you know about that story yeah i mean i read mirage man so so know. he he's just an ordinary guy he's a small business owner owns like an electrical contracting company or something like that and he sees these lights in the base across from him you know it's way out in the distance but he reports it and then he becomes a victim and uh, the fact that they even came out and acknowledged this is scary that they would but this attempt to discredit him by doing kind of an mk ultra mind control i mean they would show up and the air force was pretending like they were interested only to go in his house and rearrange his furniture when he wasn't looking so that he'd go Oh, Paul, what do you mean? Nothing happened. They're trying to drive him crazy in order to discredit his testimony. That wouldn't fit in with what you're saying at all. And we see this repeated over and over again. If you go yeah, look at what, where did he, where did, what, like, where did he see the thing that he saw? Yes, he, yeah, but that's, that begs the question. So he saw it on an Air Force base. So to suggest then this is an Earth-based technology and that we kind of spun it out of, you know, our really bravo, our planes, and it doesn't fit with the data we have, right? I mean, we can kind of trace the technology of flight back pretty far. And the, at the point at which UFOs intersect with that is not at a point when we had the technological capability to do some of this stuff. It just doesn't, it just doesn't fit. Yeah, but I mean, with the Benowitz case, like, all I hear is 
he saw something at a base and then military intelligence started to fuck with him. And like, I'm not necessarily denying that there could be something with UFOs in addition to that. I'm just saying that a lot of the UFO phenomenon is explained by these agencies that exist specifically to push out disinformation. I don't mean to say that there's nothing else going on. Yeah. But you know, back to your Occam's razor thing, the Occam's razor cuts really more cleanly the other way is that the attempt to muddy the waters with misinformation is because they're hiding something that is real. I mean, if you go back and you trace like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Wilbert Smith memo that's released in the fifties. And he's a guy in Canada who is at the weird desk in Canada, the highest level talking to the prime minister about all this strange stuff that's popping up in the skies, not all the time, but reports, pilots, commercial pilots, military pilots, they're all saying at various times, like they have throughout history, we're seeing these things. So finally, the highest level people in the Canadian government, the prime minister says, hey, go down there and see what the Yanks know. And he comes down to the US and he meets with Vandevar Bush and he meets with all the other aviary people, which whether you want to believe it or not, best evidence is that it's true. And he comes back and he writes a memo. And this memo is top secret. And it's only revealed accidentally through a FOIA request in Canada. And you can trace the legitimacy of that, but it certainly doesn't look like anything that was snuck out or planted or intended to get out. And he says, hey, yeah, I went down there and this is in the 1950s. He says, this is the highest top secret thing that is going on in the US. And the other thing that he says is he says there's a mental phenomenon aspect to this that they're very interested in. And that would be the telepathic part is that they're having extended consciousness communication with these beings. So yeah, that's basically what Keel said is that it's not necessarily a physical phenomenon. Well, (laughs) it's not necessarily, but the way that cuts is what is reality anyway, you know, it's kind of uh, gets into some deeper philosophical and also physics kind of things in terms of consciousness. Is consciousness fundamental or is matter fundamental? How flexible is time? How flexible is matter? But if we're going to stay in this consensus reality where there are things that are out there that we can measure, yes, these things can have a physical property. Yes, there can be spaceships from other planets. And yes, Jacques Vallée, who, you know, writes all these books about the connections to fairies and all the rest of that also has spacecraft pieces in his pocket that he analyzes with the most technical and sophisticated microscopes we have and says, we can't make this in in this world. So the, the, the idea that it's somehow all consciousness or that there isn't a nuts and bolts is, is again, just kind of a, a punt to me of the whole thing. And I don't know where this whole thing got started. It's so flat earthish to me. (laughs) Yeah, no, I definitely think that things are always much more complicated than they seem. So let let me ask you this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we hashed it out there on the UFO thing, but we didn't Mm -hmm. really hash it out. So what is the worldview collide thing on that? And how does the worldview collide thing really ever get resolved? So taking you and I out of it for a minute, but we Mm -hmm. just went through a worldview collide kind of discussion. 
how are these things supposed to resolve themselves? Well, I mean, I think that like you were pretty forceful on the existence of a unidentified flying object phenomenon. I think that there is also overwhelming evidence of intelligence agencies infiltrating the UFO community. And you can make various sort of assumptions as to why, ranging from monitoring it, keeping tabs on it, all the way to astroturfing it completely. Like in certain times and places, they seem to have just outright funded it. So like there are probably a bunch of reasons why they would do that. So how do we reconcile the fact that there's that phenomenon and then there's intelligence agencies absolutely just caked throughout the UFO community? Like, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be just one answer, you know? I get you on part of that, but the other part of it that is troubling to me because it is also, I think, where we're at in a culture in terms of the larger, bigger picture stuff. So the, the I guess my process in that, it's the black swan thing. And the black swan thing is that if you think all swans are white, you only need one black swan. The falsification is not as hard as you might think. And the falsification of the idea that UFOs are an invention of the Air Force or an intelligence project or something like that is pretty easy just when you, like I say, you just go cross culture, cross time, and there they are. You can't jam that back into UFOs are a product of the United States military. It just doesn't fit. It's a black swan. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is certainly a good point. At the same time, like you could still take the set of data and say overwhelmingly like 99.999% of swans or UFOs were, are probably, you know, some sort of either projection using a technology, which they have patents for that projecting things into the sky or, you know, just new craft that they're experimenting with because there's, you know, like, you can't say that there's not a huge core, like correlation between UFOs and US military bases. Like, not to say that that's everything, but like, there's a very high correlation there. And that, you know, like logic would sort of correlate those two, right? And I think the shorter, more logical answer would be that's probably experimental craft. But the fundamental question is, is there a reality to beings from other planets visiting Earth? That's what we really want to know. So if it's one in a yeah, million. Yeah, well, they're, they're, uh, they're coming from Kolob, of course. What's Kolob? <laughs> I'm just, it's, it's the uh, Mormon planet. I'm just screwing around. <laughs> Well, I, I think it's, I, I think it's this, this is the kind of stuff that I think keeps popping up. It's like when you get into the stuff that kind of gets more to your field and the work that you've done on program to chill is when you get into esotericism, which is mm -hmm. really kind of code speak for a cult and which is really kind of a code speak for satanic, but none of us can process that fully. Again, I would suggest is because we're hamstrung by this very, very cultish kind of religious kind of 
I have the book and the book says everything we could ever want to know about that. But when you do talk to academics, like I talked to the guy, a guy from Ohio State University wrote a book on Scientology, and he'll mm -hmm. tell you L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons are out in the desert, and they're trying to do the, the rights to bring forth the Antichrist, and then he'll kind of just go right on and talk about the rest of the Scientology story. And you want to go, well, wait, you know, and he says something that I'll, I'll hear you say, it doesn't matter so much whether it's real or not. What matters is mm -hmm. that they believed it. And I'm like, well, no, it, it's kind of the opposite. It matters if they believed it. But the most fundamental question is, is there an extended consciousness realm? Might that exist? And might that have an influence on humanity as it as we're living it in this space-time reality? That is a question that I would say has kind of been answered by science in the last 10 years in terms of the work that's been done in parapsychology and in near-death experience, reincarnation work at major universities and published in peer-reviewed papers. It's just like the, the word hasn't got out that, yeah, the best bet is that, yes, there is a reality to that. So let's start getting serious about what that means. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, like it's been commented upon by lots of people that like, rich people like Aleister Crowley, you know, take your pick. Like people like to do magic. It's almost it rich people and poor people do magic and they mostly do different types that overlap. Right. But I really truly don't think that people are doing magic and that it has nothing like it doesn't do anything at all. You know, like whether, whether you want to say it's a psychological thing or whether it, maybe has a literal reaction that they can observe. I really don't think that like Jack Parsons, L. Ron Hubbard, Alistair Crowley, you know, any one of these people were out there just doing weird rituals in the desert and then they didn't notice anything and then they just went along their way, you know? Like, I do think that there is something to magic. I'm not necessarily <laughs> advocating that people therefore practice magic. You know what I'm saying? Oh, completely. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would almost suggest the opposite. I would, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a religious person, but it does seem to me that there is a moral imperative. There is mm -hmm. good. There is light. There is darkness. And it's kind of an as below, so above kind of thing. That's how, that's how I process all the data that I've encountered is, you know, just look around, <laughs> look around our world, our here and now world. You don't have to look very far to see darkness in a way that we don't totally understand why people are drawn to that. Why are you doing such destructive things to you and other? How does that really benefit you? But people do it nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And like, I, maybe we'll get into it, but like there are all types of magical practices and a lot of them are probably benign. I, in fact, I can almost attest to that, but like there is a specific subset of people who are interested in black magic and black magic specifically is all about contacting non-human entities to get them to do things for them. And it's always tied up in doing acts of violence, certain sexual acts, and there's a whole framework for doing it in order to do these things. And 
then it becomes very, very concerning when you perceive certain powerful people doing that. Like, I think a lot of people were a little clued into that with Epstein and his interesting looking temple on his island in the Caribbean, right? That was certainly one of the starting points for me. Well, one of the other starting points for a lot of people was Pizzagate, but I'm not sure you're kind of too, what are you thinking about Pizzagate? And, and to what extent are you viewing this through an exclusively Christian lens? I would say not exclusively Christian. Like I was not particularly tuned into black magic when I was at my most devout. I sort of got into this first and foremost through looking at intelligence agencies, you know, more of the financial stuff. And and then I kept seeing this correlation between certain people being interested in magic also. And I just don't see them being interested in something that is purely spiritual, that has no tangible relation to like, you know what I'm saying? Like people don't put time and effort into things for no payoff. Right. Although it gets complicated in the same way that the the Nazi financing gets complicated. And we say, you know, the industrialist mm -hmm. that you document in the whole series you do on the financing of Hitler are all over the board. They're not, we can't assume that they're all anti-Semitic, and you kind of point that out. And we can't assume that they're all even pro-Nazi. A lot of them are just being strategic and they're placing their bets mm -hmm. all over the place. And I think the same thing is going on here, right? I mean, you, you, there's a certain go along to get along aspect to politics, certainly. So how are you processing the Pizzagate thing? Because again, it, the worldview collide. The other thing I get from the tinfoil left, when I talk about Pizzagate, and they go, oh, yeah, Pizzagate, that's where a guy goes in and shoots up a pizza restaurant. And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's where they tried to submarine Hillary Clinton by releasing all these emails that showed her strange connection to occult practices that because so much of the population is completely mesmerized by this Christian motif, any hint of occult practices connected with these people is going to seriously damage her politically. That to me seems like clearly the intent of the emails. And there was enough substance to the emails that it just generated this huge storm on Twitter and on social media. But then Again, it's a rewrite of history when I hear these people say, yeah, it's about this wacky right-wing guy who shot up a pizza parlor. No, it's about the emails. Yeah, no, because that's the thing. There are so many aspects to Pizzagate because first and foremost, that restaurant, the guy who owns it, probably, well, okay, I won't say anything that could get me sued. He seemed pretty creepy. Um, the emails, the timing of them was absolutely designed to tank her for sure. That was an operation. That said, <laughs> the Clintons do also seem to have their hands in some weird, you know, some of that Marina Abramovic stuff is like really, it's, it's art, but it's also, they're just doing magic. Like whether or not you think that's real or, you know, whatever, it's really weird and it freaks out the electorate and just pointing it out is not necessarily bad. Obviously the way that it was framed with Pizzagate was designed to cause maximum damage, but that's just how politics is. Right. So it's like, 
it was an operation. There was some truth here. There was some truth there, you know, but it's also just designed to take her down. Really interesting stuff. It is really interesting stuff. And now we're kind of getting somewhere, I think. And I think it's really easy for people at this point to see the connections that I make with that and the work you've done on Program to Chill, because Program to Chill forces us to think of everything from a parapolitical, which is code speak for conspiracy theory, because people freak out when you say conspiracy theory. So from a parapolitical standpoint is like, huh, who was behind that operation? And why was that operation run? And then why was history rewritten as Mm -hmm. right-wing conspiracy theory guy goes in and shoots up a pizza restaurant? And as you kind of were approaching, James Elephantis is, (laughs) he might be a pizza owner, but he's one of the most influential Democrat connected at the highest level kind of personages in Washington, DC. And what happened when they, when they did the crowdsource kind of investigation on him is he has this, oh, beyond creepy connections to very pedophilic themed pictures, art, which we can't even call it art. It's just pedophilia disguised as art. Extremely disturbing art. And, and there's James Elephantis right in the middle of that or either commenting on it or liking people who are connected with it. There's just, it's, it's undeniable. What is deniable is do we have any proof that he mm-hmm. was engaging in sexual? No, we don't have that. You know, was he convicted? No, we don't have that. But anyone who has the, the stomach, which I would forgive anyone if they didn't, looking in that comes in and goes, oh my God, that's, it's, it's incredible to think that that guy would have that level of of influence and gravitas within the democratic community and would be still friends with everybody because that's always the thing i say is like okay you didn't know any of that stuff about james elephantis and he was your friend now you do know it is he still your friend for most mm-hmm. of us you'd be like fuck no i mean i'm like you know what so but the the op is is strange because the op it's it's like let me shift gears for a minute and get your thought on this january 6th the to me the direct parallels to pizzagate january 6th the message that came out of that and i wasn't even following that close was but it just kind of rang in my head and then they stormed the capitol And, and then they stormed the capitol like and then the guy went in and shot up the pizza restaurant. It's like, but that isn't what that was about. What do you think of the possibility that there was a, and I sent you the link, that there was an agent provocateur among the crowd that was. Oh, definitely- more than just like one. I think that there was a whole host of people. Like it's been documented that there were people from Fort Bragg's Army Psychological Operations Units present at january 6th there was a weird lack of capital police they seemed to receive atypical instructions on how to handle it they seem to sort of you know there's a thing like there are other groups in the mix and i know that steven snyder you know recluse has done a he's he had at least one show that arguably almost laid it all out as far as can be known currently but it's just like yeah, they were definitely provoking them to into doing that. And then I think a lot of the people who got arrested, some but not all, <laughs> were, I, I wouldn't say innocent, but like 
I'm not in, I'm not in a position as a judge in the first place, but like a lot of times the people who actually get charges for things like this are not the people who instigated or caused it. I'll say that. So let's connect it back. How are we to understand this history when it's being rewritten right in front of our eyes? I run across people all the time who are Trump supporters. And I'm like, clearly at this point, it's an op, right? I mean, Trump is a brand. He's not a, he's a brand in the same way. I mean, Biden is clearly not, no one thinks Biden is a a leader or a political figure. There's something going on here that we're completely not aware of, we're hidden from, but whatever we even take a step into it, we're forced into this other paradigm, whether it's the left-right paradigm or whether it's the whatever. And and maybe this speaks back to one of your points earlier is we're at a time in history when there's more professional liars than at any other point in history. But I, I don't know how you how you make your way through the hall of mirrors. Yeah. I mean, all you can really do is just toe the line and insist on consent, a certain amount of consensus reality. Like, like you can't deny what you're observing. Like you see something and it doesn't match what people are saying. You just have to like stick to your guns. Like, like that's all you can do. That's not to say only trust yourself. Yeah, you should listen to other people. But like, if things don't add up to you, they probably don't add up. Like, unless you're really bad at math, right? Like, most people, I think, have an intuitive understanding that things are off and that a lot, like, the the media has taken a lot of criticism. But like, rightfully, they should be criticized for a lot of the things that they have lied about in the recent past in and going back further as well right where do you stand on the whole you got to take the jab you got to wear a mask kind of thing you know i was pretty compliant i got the vaccine and i was paying attention to a lot of the observers and critics and i am increasingly skeptical of like the ongoing like i am most skeptical of the like biomedical like them trying to bring in all these policies all that yeah but like i i know enough about bioweapons research to get myself in trouble which is to say that like they were specifically testing that over there there was you know like in wuhan they were studying this exact thing and then it got out so like i'm very skeptical of like the policies they're rolling out i'm not necessarily doubting the existence of the virus or the uh you know vaccines and then i just have doubts as to what they're instrumentalizing it for oh exactly i mean i i've that's another thing. It's like the flat earth thing, which you identified as a psyop. I think flat earth is a complete psyop. It's a way oh, yeah. to take the the truther community and divide them. And then, oh, we can just, any of these people who got on this side, we can just write them off. Oh, they're flat earth people. I think the, the same is true with the virus. And it really caught me by surprise the first time I, I was talking to David Icke and he's like, <laughs> there is no virus. You know, there is no virus. And I like, I just talked to Andy Kaufman. There was no virus. I go, David, 
David, you figured it out with the swine flu that it was a it was an op. How are you burying your head in the sand this time? It's clearly an op. And the other thing is, if you really look at the science, and I might just take this out because I think it detracts from the other conversation we we're having. But the like you said, the Wuhan lab, the gain of function, the when mm -hmm. they break down, you know, we can genetically decode the virus and it doesn't add up. And there's this excellent video, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but this guy does, he says there's actually a, a website that lets you look at strings of genetic code to see where they're at. And this is used kind of from a legal standpoint for patents, you know, mm. and he goes through and he does it step by step, you know, and he, the, the, at the end of the day, it's Moderna patents very, very convincing. There's no way this is an organic virus. There's a bunch of people who have said that because there's clear mm -hmm. evidence of gene splicing. And then for certain sequences in that to be on a patent on Moderna, which isn't, which is like a fake company to begin with is kind of invented, doesn't really have anything, you know, you cannot pack that back into, oh, it was an accident. Oh, they tried to keep us safe and it just didn't work. <laughs> and then you see certain people who arguably have gotten things right in the past almost intentionally take the wrong stance on this. It raises some questions. Great, great point. Well, uh, it's been great having you on. Spend a couple of hours. Maybe we'll break it into two. Maybe I'll leave it as one. But thanks so much for joining me on Skeptico. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Jimmy Fallon Gong for joining me today on Skeptico. The one question I tee up from this interview is, what are your values? What values do you value most? And more importantly, how do you think they might influence your beliefs about so many of the topics that we talk about here on Skeptico? How do your values influence your beliefs on the UFO topic we talked about, or on the left-right paradigm we talked about, or on the whole topic of conspiracy and conspiracy theories that seems to come up a lot on Skeptico? Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Stay with me for much more. Until next time, take care and bye for now.